Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And a while back, we got a letter from Sam, also known as Samsonite. <laughs> it was one of my favorite letters ever. We got an email, too, and both were begging for an episode on the, quote, fabulous Madame de Pompadour. And she was pretty fabulous. I mean, we can come out and say that right at the beginning of the podcast. She is, of course, the famous mistress of Louis the Fifteenth, and she was a patron of the arts, builder of many chateaux, friend of Voltaire, a champion of the French porcelain industry, and she was considered by many people, at least, to be an arbitrator of taste in France, much as Louis the Fourteenth was, as we discussed in our previous episode. Madame de Pompadour also had some less fabulous aspects about her as well, including her reputation for disastrous diplomacy, overspending, and spy-fueled paranoia. Yeah, and the first thing I looked at when uh, I started looking into Madame de Pompadour for this episode were all of these reviews of an art show that took place a few years back, and the reviews were were pretty critical of the show, or most of them were, at least. And um, it seemed to be that a lot of them found the show uh, shortchanged her, you know, sort of didn't consider her much of a patron at all, just a lady who liked to buy stuff. Um, and I thought it was interesting that people were so opinionated about this woman, this mistress, who lived and died hundreds of years ago. And it made me go into this whole thing, realizing that this was going to, she's going to be a hard person to nail down exactly what she was like and what her character is like. And uh, I certainly don't think I was able to nail her down. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we're going to try to take a look at this incredibly famous woman from a few different perspectives, not just... One. Yeah, we're gonna look at her life, I guess, in from a panoramic point of view. Yeah, but excellent way. Still to try it. to siphon it down a little bit for you, so that you can um, get a little slice of who she is and who was she. She was born Jeanne Antoinette Poisson on December 29th, 1721, in Paris, and her family was in a kind of uniquely mobile class at that time. They were bourgeois, but connected and influential at the same time. But they were a little bit tainted by scandal. Yeah, so her father was a finance speculator, and he worked for one of the Peru brothers, who were bankers and behind-the-scenes speculators, who have been called, quote, the Black Holes in the History of the 18th Century by Christine Pevet Algrant's book on Madame de Pompadour, which I think that is a very creepy and interesting description of somebody, a black hole. Um, so nobody's entirely sure how far their dealings reached, but they were quite extensive. And while the rest of Paris was being ruined by all these bad tips and speculations, it was a time for when a lot of people's fortunes were vanished overnight and they ended up in jail. Through all of that, the Poisson family mostly stayed above water until 1725 when young Jean Antoinette's father participated in a speculating scheme that led to famine in Paris. He didn't come out of that well at all. Yeah, that's where things start to get a little bit sketchy as far as he's concerned. He has to flee the country, but his employer, the third Paris brother, was, though he was initially sent to the Bastille, he's released quickly 
On the other hand, though, Poisson still has to stay in exile for 10 years after that. And I find it a little suspicious that no one ever took care of this. Yeah, that the head honcho gets out of jail so quickly, yet the employee is banished for so long. So that's a little mysterious, what was going on there. But there was more suspicion and scandal going on. Jeanne Antoinette's mother was a young beauty and also a serial adulteress. And while several men besides Poisson could have fathered young Jeanne Antoinette, the most likely candidate is Charles Lenormand de Tournem. And he was a colleague of her father's. And why he's sort of considered the number one prospect for being her biological father is that he showed tremendous interest in the young girl and her mother and her brother while Poisson, the legal father, was in exile. So a father figure of sorts. Definitely a father figure and a protector for the family. So by age five, Jeanne Antoinette is already known as Renette to her family, which means little queen. I think we've mentioned that before in another podcast, too. And for stability, she was sent to a convent where her father's cousin and mother's sister could look after her. And that was a nice time for her. It was a lot more, yeah, as you said, stable, but also happy and loving and relaxing. It was considered a a high point in her life. Then by age nine, she's ready to emerge, though, and start her finishing, so to speak. She takes singing lessons, declamation lessons. She learns harpsichord, reading, embroidery, riding, carriage driving, all the things that would make a girl a good wife. Yeah, they're aiming high with young Jean Antoinette. But her mother also wants to know what her daughter's destiny is going to be. And so the very first thing the mother does when she reclaims Jeanne Antoinette from the convent is to take her to a Paris fortune teller named Madame Le Bon, who tells the girl that she'll someday be the mistress of Louis XV. And uh, we quite know the this. prediction. Yeah, quite the prediction. We know this because in Madame de Pompadour's will, she leaves... 600 livres to the fortune teller for this accurate prediction. Um, and it is pretty important in her early life and in her later life. It lays the seed of ambition in both the mother and the daughter, even though success seems pretty much impossible at this point. So now seems like a good time to say a little about Louis XV, since he's mentioned here as a possible prospect for our main character. When Jeanne Antoinette was getting her fortune read in Paris, Louis was 20 years old at the time and handsome, already father of five and pretty faithful at that point to his wife, the Queen Marie. He lived mostly at Versailles, and though he was pleasure-loving, he was extremely shy. So unlike his great-grandfather, Louis XIV, who we discussed in the last Bourbon episode, and he established, we discussed how he established all these public rituals at court, His great-grandson, Louis XV, felt very uncomfortable performing these rituals. Um, So, big difference there. He tried to escape them when he could. Um, But his early life had also been racked by one tragedy after another, and it made him kind of morose and sometimes deeply, deeply depressed. His mother, father, and elder brother had all died in one fell swoop of smallpox, um, And then his great-grandfather had died soon after that, making this five-year-old orphaned boy king. And, of course, he had been brought up with the full responsibilities of being king without a family to fall back on. And his to make things even worse, his uncle and his regent had died when Louis was still in his teens. So, you know, 
In his very early youth, he had experienced a lot of tragedy, and it really shaped the man he became. Um, by his mid-20s, though, with all of these kids had by <laughs> his wife, he had started taking mistresses. Weirdly, though, at least to the court, he seemed to always choose his mistresses from one family. He started with one sister and then moved on to the next sister and then on to the third sister. I got to agree with the court there. That seems a little weird. It's a little bit weird, definitely. Um, People were sort of disturbed that one family seemed to have a monopoly on this official mistress title. Um, but when the third of these sisters died, Louis was really distraught, and everybody at court was wondering, well, who's he going to choose? He needs a new mistress once he gets over this one. Um, there were still a few more sisters in that family, so <laughs> a lot of people were just thinking, well, move on to the next one. And then some people were offering up their own candidates. Yeah, everybody had a candidate to console the king. It was uh, potentially influential and um, a position that could make the girl and her family quite a bit of money. So that brings the story back around to Jean Antoinette, who in the meantime has grown up pretty well. She's 18, lovely, talented, but she has some problems with her eligibility. For one thing, her shady mother and father, who's back at this point, her vague social position and her tiny dowry that she has to offer. So all these things combined kind of make her a sort of sketchy prospect. But when it comes down to it, this girl who's friends with the likes of Voltaire needs to be married if she's going to become a star of Parisian society like she wants to be. Yeah. So fortunately, her benefactor and father figure, Tonhem, has a prospect in mind, his own nephew, Charles Guillaume Lenormand. And it's interesting, and this is sort of, again, where the suspicion falls on um Jean Antoinette's true paternity, but her benefactor has disinherited all of his other heirs for this nephew in particular, who he wants to set up with the young lady. Um, so it seems like he's putting all of his eggs in one basket. He wants to give his fortune and his estate to his nephew and his nephew's wife. So the young couple's wedding present is the estate of Etiole, and they soon have a son who dies and then a daughter, Alexandrine. But there's something else that's interesting and convenient for ambitious young Jean Antoinette, now Madame d'Etiole, every August, the king and the court stay nearby and go hunting. So you have the king in the neighborhood. Very convenient. Very convenient indeed. So we don't actually know when the relationship between Jean Antoinette and the king begin, whether it's at Etiole or later. But what we do know is on February 25th, 1745, there's a mask ball in honor of the Dauphin's wedding. The king comes to this ball dressed as a yew tree, and Madame d'Etoile comes dressed as Diana. And they're reportedly seen chatting, hanging about together. Yeah, and there's actually um, an engraving made of this meeting. And I advise you to look it up if you can, because the yew tree costume is pretty ridiculous. It's like, <laughs> it looks like it's about a 
10-foot-high topiary, and there are several yew trees, so they're all wandering around. <laughs> um, and we can presume that one of them is the king underneath it all. I feel um, like you should know which one. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a it should tiny, be a special yew tree. It's a really tiny print, so maybe it's clear which one is the king. But I guess he was he was shy. He was trying to, trying trying to, to hide out. Be a wallflower. But this is where the relationship definitely starts going full speed because soon after, Madame de Diol is installed at Versailles in this tiny set of rooms in the attic. And by the time her husband returns from business, he's been conveniently out of the country this whole time, he gets the news that he'll need to separate from his wife and he faints. It's um, it's shocking news for him. He had no inkling that the king would run off with his wife. So a few months later, Louis is ready to make Madame de Tiol his official mistress. But at first, she has to be presented at court. And for that, she needs a little bit of preparation. So first off, she needs a title. The title of Pompadour happens to be free, so that one's negotiated for her. And she also spends the summer at her estate coached by the Abbé de Berny on manners. And she's also coached by Voltaire on literature, which I think it would be pretty awesome to. Sounds like a fun summer, to be honest. these tutorials. Um, yeah, but she needs some more finishing, essentially. She's had finishing to be a bourgeois wife, but um, it takes kind of a higher level to be presented at Versailles. Uh, but finally, she becomes the Marquise de Pompadour and is presented at court. And Shy Louis is terribly embarrassed by this obviously, like everything at Versailles, extremely formal spectacle. But young Jean Antoinette really distinguishes herself by um, you know, carrying herself well, not tripping while she has to walk backwards and perform all these tricks. And most notably, behaving extremely respectfully to the Queen, because Louis's former mistress hadn't treated the Queen very well. And I think uh, Madame de Pompadour realized almost immediately that she would try to, if not get in the Queen's good graces, at least be kind to her because it helped Louis sort of unload some of his guilt he had about cheating on his wife, and it hopefully helped make things a little easier for him and his family. And just from her point of view, she seemed to need all the help she could get from the simple reason that many of the courtiers were scandalized by their relationship. One noted that she was excessively common, a bourgeois out of her place who will displace all the world if one cannot manage to displace her. The Dauphin called her Mama Poutin. Which is a pretty nasty thing to say to somebody. Um, if you are a young person listening, you might want to cover your ears, but it means whore mama, essentially, whore mommy. So um, not a nice thing at all no. for the Dauphin to be calling her. Um, but we should point out, too, why people are so scandalized that she's of the wrong class. She's moving into the title of official mistress, which is something that a noblewoman should occupy. Of course, the king is going to have mistresses of all classes, but they're not going to occupy this prominent place at court. That's what has people so upset. It's their own um, nieces and daughters and sisters who should be occupying this position, not this upstart. So because of this, most people think that she'll be short-lived at Versailles. But Pompadour has different plans. Yeah, she figures out Louis' personality very quickly. Um, 
he's initially very attracted to her, but she works from the start at making him um, need her for for other things too, for his entertainment, for his day to day life, um, to keep him from succumbing to his depression. He needs to be entertained, um, but he also likes his privacy, his life away from all the court ritual. Um, just a note on his private rooms, which are kind of amazing sounding in their complexity. Uh, they included libraries and dining rooms, a wood workshop, a distillery where he made perfumes, a kitchen where he baked up little pastries, all these terraces with bird cages and even a chicken coop. And Pompadour's attic rooms were right above these. And she even had a personal elevator lift, essentially, called a flying chair to to get to them without hiking up the stairs. Um, But she knows that she can create an escape world for him in these private rooms, a place where he can be himself. And she does just that. She throws parties in the rooms that have exclusive guest lists. She stages plays with her in the starring roles, of course. And the two, they do all kinds of things together there. Um, Besides the obvious, I guess, they study botany and they garden together. They work on architectural plans together. And uh, they do this along with her brother, the director of the King's Buildings. Yeah, eventually this close working group of three plan the École Militaire, the Place Louis Quinze, uh, which is today the Place de la Concorde, Petite Trianon and Chateau de Bellevue, which is no longer existing, but uh, in addition to a lot of other chateaux and um, little retreats and pavilions and such, they definitely share a love of architecture. And consequently, Louis comes to rely on her for his social life, for his stability. Um, she completes him. So her plan is kind of working out here. But after about five years or so, and at least two miscarriages, and possibly a gynecological condition, the romance between the two of them has pretty much petered out. Yeah, and that part has always been a little difficult for Madame de Pompadour. Um, supposedly, to put her in the mood, she would eat a diet of celery, vanilla, and truffles. Um, so... Yeah, their their romance has been fizzling. Um, but by 1750, the court gossip is that the king and his official mistress haven't been sleeping together for about a year. So with this news, Pompadour haters are pretty happy about it. And Pompadour herself decides that she needs to do something. She needs to really dig in and, and find a different way. She likes this life and she likes the power. So to crush the gossipers... She makes a public declaration of her friendship with Louis by commissioning a statue of her, not as Venus or Diana, as she'd done in the past, but as an allegorical friendship. Yeah, and conveniently, 1751, which follows the commissioning of this statue, is Holy Year in France, which would be a perfect time for Louis to repent and take the sacrament at Easter, and maybe, at least Madame de Pompadour is hoping, still get to keep her around because now they are no longer sleeping together. That's kind of ridiculous if she she really thought that would happen. But, um, you know, it's a plan, and the public declaration of friendship is... Something to to let everybody know, I'm still here. You can gossip all you want, but I'm still important to the king. Um, 
It's a perilous road, though, and her position as the royal friend is really unstable, obviously, just as the position of um, mistress earlier was unstable. It's pretty topsy-turvy. Yeah, Louis ends up making her a duchess, which is the highest honor he can bestow at her at that time. But then he seems about to throw her over for a new lady of the court. Pompadour still holds on, though. She's still hanging on for dear life. And eventually, she and the king, they work out a deal. He'll have other mistresses, but they'll be extremely young girls, uneducated, and with absolutely no position at court. Yeah, so they're not going to be direct competition to her. Uh, Louis kind of gets in trouble for some of this later. Parisians and uh, the rest of France aren't really that into his little um, chateau full of teenagers he keeps, but um, we could talk about that more later. <laughs> um, the thing is, though, even though Pompadour has declared that her life from now on will be quote, perpetual combat, she really has become indispensable to Louis, and I think he knew that, too. Um, but her direct influence over him is kind of another point of contention, and that's something that um, was mentioned in some of those reviews I talked about earlier. A lot of the post-revolutionary historians made her out to be the puppet master to the weak-minded Bourbon king. Uh, but in all actuality, she was probably more of a go-between uh, for a man who was intensely uncomfortable dealing with people who he didn't know very well. He had trouble communicating with strangers, whereas she was quite good at it, and he was comfortable around her. Um, she became a woman to see for your favors, promotions, privileges, all that sort of thing. Inversely, if you didn't see her or didn't pay her court, you might find yourself on her bad side. She was also a spy master of sorts, though. She had made a deal with the head of Paris police so that she could be privy to any information that they had and any threats that happened to be around. She placed agents at all levels in the cabinet noir of the public post. And this is the department that will steam open mail and read it and find out everything that's going on. So, Yeah, it's sort of interesting, too. Louis would get excerpts from this steamed open mail, and he treated it sort of as fun gossip, like all the weird stuff people write to each other when they think it's secret. But uh, Madame de Pompadour took it a little more seriously than that, and it's quite possible that eventually she became better informed on the secrets of the mail than Louis himself. She could be pretty obsessive. She was quite concerned for her life at many points. And while she was commissioning new portraits of herself as a patron of the arts and learning, she was also pursuing those who were accused of libel against her and pursuing them quite vigorously. Some spent decades in the Bastille, so she wasn't one to trifle with. No, definitely didn't want to mess with her. But her broadening range of involvements didn't mean that she couldn't stop being the charming companion to the king either. The best example of this probably comes in 1754 when her 10-year-old daughter Alexandrine, or Fon Fon, dies suddenly. Only days later, Pompadour's father dies, and to make matters even worse, one of Louis' mistresses gives birth to a girl. Yeah, and the way she handles this... Uh drew note from observers. She only took a few days of seclusion. She took about a week of private dinners with the king, and then she had to get back to it. There was commentary from a duke about six weeks after the death of her daughter, and he wrote, quote, 
I saw her for the first time since the death of her daughter, a terrible blow from which I thought she would be devastated. But as too much grief would have done harm to her looks and perhaps even weakened her position at court, I found her neither changed nor downcast. And by one of those miracles at the court, which are frequent of this kind, I found her no less dashing nor affecting any more serious air. And yet she has been deeply shaken, and she was in all likelihood as unhappy inside as she seemed happy without. So that's a sad, sad picture of this woman who, um, though she has achieved great things by now, still has to play a part. She can't. She can't take time off for herself. Yeah, it is sad, but in a lot of ways it serves her well. This ability to act, to put on a public face, it allows her to keep her position and gain even more influence at court. So on February 8th, 1756, she's named Lady-in-Waiting to the Queen. This is the most prestigious position at court, although Pompadour gets the honors without having to really do all the duties. Yeah, we have to imagine it would be a little awkward for the queen, too. Yeah. I think Pompadour herself has to inform her because Louis has chickened out <laughs> that, yes, I'll be your 13th lady in waiting. <laughs> so again here, she refurbishes her image. She wears a proper lace cap. She has a near vegetarian diet. And there are portraits of her that depict her at a tapestry frame instead of a rouge pot at this point. That's where people would come and see her while she's working on her tapestry. It's mm-hmm. much more matronly than putting on rouge, although people at court did notice that she did not discontinue her use of rouge. If you <laughs> see any pictures of her, that's quite apparent. Um, but it seemed like at this point she was untouchable. She was 35, maybe at her happiest. Um, but she was also nearing um, nearing the decision that led to her eventual downfall. Trouble was brewing in Europe. And back in the 1740s, Frederick II, the Great of Prussia, took the province of Silesia from the Austrian Habsburgs. Surprise, surprise, the Austrians wanted it back. But the real trouble came when several long-held alliances switched. Um, Prussia and France had traditionally been friends. Austria and France had traditionally been enemies. So France thought that it had a pretty solid Franco-Prussian alliance going on when suddenly, in the 1750s, and it was quite sudden, Frederick II announced that he'd signed a treaty with Great Britain. So France was cold-shouldered by Prussia. And in response, France allied itself with Austria. And this is something that was called the Diplomatic Revolution. And surprisingly, Madame de Pompadour played a major role in this upheaval since the Austrian chancellor had approached her to be the intermediary between Maria Theresa of Austria and Louis XV. So she's in politics for real this time, not just dealing with the appointments and that sort of thing, but being approached by the by the chancellor. Yeah, she becomes very vested in this alliance with Austria and in the Seven Years' War that comes out of it. And you guys, you and Katie, I think, talked about the Seven Years' War during a series on Catherine the Great. So if you need a little more information about that, it can be kind of confusing, definitely. The three petticoats. Yep, go back and (laughs) find out what that is. Of course, because of her sort of spurious social position, a lot of people still don't take her seriously, but Voltaire still calls her prime minister because of her great influence at this time. And that's that turns out to be unfortunate for her, that people do associate her with 
this treaty and with this war because the war goes poorly, especially for France. Uh, their armies are crushed on the continent by Frederick and they suffer huge colonial losses of colonial possessions in India and North America to Britain. And probably worst of all, the treasury is drained and we all know what's coming up just a few years down the line here. <laughs> um, having a drained treasury, a huge populace, and an unpopular king is bad news for Madame de Pompadour, the kind of always unpopular mistress. She's blamed for the country's misfortunes, and uh, it gets pretty violent. She's threatened with pamphlets and cruel letters and verses, and she is kind of crushed by it all. She relinquishes a lot of her political responsibilities, but still she does not retire. She, she talks about it, but it's almost coy how she, how she talks about retiring. Um, it seems pretty clear that she fully intends to stay at Versailles, uh, stay on at court, and she sincerely believes that Louis needs her, and I think that's an important thing to remember through all of her diplomatic intrigues, um, she thinks that she can't quit. She can't leave because Louis needs her and France needs her. Yeah, but she is down about all this. She's melancholy and also increasingly ill. And on Palm Sunday, April 15th, 1764, she dies at age 43, probably of lung cancer. And this is kind of really sad on top of that. Her body was immediately removed from Versailles. The Duchess de Prelant observed the scene, and she said, I saw two men carrying a stretcher. When they approached, I saw that it was the body of a woman covered only with a sheet so short that the shape of the head, the breasts, the stomach, and the legs were clearly distinct. It was the body of that poor woman who, according to the strict law that no one dead could remain in the chateau, was being taken chez elle. Yeah, definitely sad. She's already broken a rule by dying in Versailles. Since she's not a member of the royal family, she's got to be whisked away before death taints the the palace. So the king's doctor, Sanak, breaks the news to him, and Louis, who's been with this woman for nearly 20 years, responds, quote, Only I, Sanak, know the extent of my loss. Um not long before Madame de Pompadour's death, she's said to have told Louis, après nous le déluge, which means after us, the deluge. Um, it's a quote that's often attributed to Louis, and it's a little, I was a little surprised to see it attributed so many places to both. Um, I don't know if Louis appropriated it or Maybe. if it's misattributed often. Um, with Louis, it's often listed as après moi, le déluge. But uh, I think it is an appropriate quote to end our episode on Madame de Pompadour, uh, but also a good way to keep this series going. With yeah, a nice setup. Definitely a nice setup. So possibly next in the series, the deluge itself. Um, I, I kind of like episodes that are like on the brink of disaster. Yep. <laughs> um, but you you can see at the end of Pompadour's life, all of these pieces falling apart. Unpopular king, unpopular mistress, uh, broke country. And some really, really unhappy people. Um, so they're prepped for revolution. Definitely. And I guess that brings us to listener mail. So this message is from Robert in St. Louis. And he wrote, quote, I'm a history fanatic and I'm glad I found your podcast earlier this week. 
I have a negative thing to say and a positive. First, the negative to get it out of the way. In the 1215 episode on gladiator graveyards, one of you said, quote, you imagine it like prison barracks, but that's not how it is at all. They were owned by private citizens, even though the gladiators had no personal rights. They were pretty well taken care of because they were a major investment, end quote. Based on the context throughout the episode, it sounded as if you were implying that the whole slavery gladiator situation wasn't so bad, which seemed like an odd point to be making. Apply the above quote to slavery in the 19th century in America, and you'll see why I thought it was odd, possibly offensive to some, though I'm sure we're in no danger of offending descendants of ancient Rome. I may be picking at straws, and I thought the episode as a whole was very good. Now on to the positive. In the 1228 episode, Five Historical Finds, I found it very amusing that ancients apparently did not want to go to the trouble of husking, winnowing, milling grain when it came to helping their people not starve. But alcohol, you bet. Hilarious bit of irony there. Thanks and keep it up. Um, so in case anybody else thought that we were saying it wasn't bad to be a gladiator, we think it, it would be bad to be eaten by a lion or stabbed through the ribs, yeah. even if you were fed this hearty vegan diet and had your bones set and were well taken care of. Indeed, we do not condone those activities. No, not at all. Um, but I think to, to be more specific, what we're trying to say is, well, gladiators are often considered, uh, at least in movies, prisoners immediately tossed into the ring. Why bother feeding to them? To be eaten or, immediately. Yeah, yes. to be eaten mm-hmm. or killed, killed immediately. Fight to the death. We wanted to make the point that because they were investments, their standard of life was fairly high, at least until they got to the ring. They are still slaves. They are still probably ultimately eaten by lions, which is going to be blue anyway you cut it. It probably wouldn't be the position you would want to be in in society. Your but, life's aspiration. Right. But they got good medical care. They were given meals. So I think that was the only point we were trying to make. Definitely not that it was something... Glorious. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so I hope that clears it up a little bit, Robert, and anybody else who, who misunderstood us there. Um, and thank you for the email. And, um, we'll try to, we'll try to keep up the hilarious bits of irony too. Um, <laughs> so if you have any other messages you want to send us, any emails, you can find us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History and we have a Facebook fan page. All excellent ways to send us your gladiatorial queries. Um, and we also have some more French Revolution articles. Yeah, if you want a little preview to what we're going to be talking about in upcoming bourbon episodes, you can check out how the French Revolution worked by visiting our homepage and typing in French Revolution at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. iTunes.